Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Charlie Strauss writes science fiction in a variety of subgenres and styles. He is the winner of several Hugo Awards and the author of some two dozen books. Charlie, thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for inviting me. How many books have you written? I tried to count on your website because you have the US and UK editions, so it's kind of hard. Is it more than two dozen already? Um, I think it's probably more than 30. It's a bit difficult to pin the precise number down because there's always a couple at different stages of production or in development. But there's um, definitely more than 28 in print. Yeah. And I saw that one series has been republished as omnibus editions with two novels in each book. What happened with that was I originally wanted to write a series of four big, fat, techno-thriller-ish parallel universe travel books. And no plan survives contact with the enemy, or in this case, my editor. And he decided to chop the first book into two, because why sell one book when you can sell two? Exactly. And the result was they were sold as uh, skinny fantasy books rather than as fat, thriller-ish books initially, and came out as a series of six. Then I got a chance to get them reissued in the UK because my primary market is the United States. And I convinced my UK editor to let me reassemble them into the original intended form, which actually worked a lot better. And that's why the omnibuses exist. The omnibuses are really a uh, director's cut, as it were, of the original. And there's a sequel series as well. So call it a six book series or a nine book series, whichever you prefer. (laughs) It's interesting in science fiction that there are so many series. And on the one hand, that makes it possible to follow someone's universe. But on the other hand, it can get kind of confusing. You know, what what's the first step into a series? Authors will often say, well, you can read the books in any order, but you can't read the books in any order, can you? It depends. There's multiple different types of series. Um, let me use an, an analogy with television series. You've got some such as Star Trek where it's usually the, no, hang on, old Star Trek used to be episode of a week, then you hit a reset, and stuff that changes the universe significantly hasn't happened, it's all reset. And then you get ones with a continuous ongoing narrative story arc, such as Babylon 5, which runs from beginning to an end. And you've got the same thing in print. Some books are a shared setting. For example, Terry Pratchett's Discworld. You can, in principle, read any one of them as a standalone, although if you read them through in sequence, it adds depth and texture. Other series, such as Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, is very much... A, uh, it's really an, a gigantic novel in 14 books, is it? 14, so, I believe, yeah. yeah. But there, wasn't there a prequel as well? I don't so. know. Um between you and me, I don't read gigantic fantasy series. Yeah, yeah. So with mine, um, the Merchant Princess series, the three omnibus editions tell one story. There's then the Empire Games trilogy, which is, again, another giant narrative arc, but a standalone you can read without having read the earlier ones, although it'll be a bit easier to get to grips with if you have. The Laundry Files... And between you and me, I hate that title. It was pinned on it by an editor many years ago when they were ordered to pin titles on everything with more than three books. Um, It started out as a a one-shot short novel about a guy called Bob, who's basically a sandal-wearing, slash-dot-reading, dot-com-one-era geek, who's accidentally fallen into a Lendate and spy agency, um, tasked with defending the UK against intrusions by Lovecraftian horrors. Uh, 
so you've got some situational humour right there with an Ill, ill-adjusted, ill-suited prota- protagonist. And um, it gradually developed a life of its own as they asked for a sequel and then more. And um, before I knew what had happened, I'd actually developed an entire world. Other characters got their own books. And most recently, because it is to some extent set in an alternate near present and a nightmarish one at that, um, I basically spun out a spin-off series, book two of which is now coming out in January, um, so that as of Dead Lies Dreaming, which is in the US marketed as book 10 of a laundry files, it's actually an entirely different series, same universe, different people. And while there is a developing story arc in the background, there are multiple entry point novels. Um, I realised a few books in that it is terrible to get the grips with a, st- a series with that much backstory. So book five of the Laundry Files is a new entry point if you haven't read the previous four, as is book seven. And again, book 10, different series entirely. Hmm. Okay. Because I am used to, you know, when, when you have mystery novels, the mystery resolves at the end, but you've got the ongoing character from one book to the next in the series. We had Peter Robinson on the show who's written about 25 of his Inspector Banks novels. And through the novels, you see the evolution of the character. His children grow up, he gets divorced, etc. And that's the backstory that ties them together, but that's really not essential to the story. But in mystery novels, at least, you have to have that resolution at the end. Whereas in science fiction and fantasy, you don't have to. You can go on because you don't, I mean, you could have a science fiction mystery, but you don't have to find a killer. You don't have to find a killer, it's true, but you do have to deliver closure at the end. Um, your readers will hate you if they don't feel that what they came there for, which gave rise to the dramatic climax, hasn't been resolved in some way. Um, it's also, it's not just mystery. Romance, for example, the definition of the romance genre is simply the protagonists who fall in love get a happy ever after or a happy for now ending, um, just as in the mystery, the uh, killer gets arrested. Um if you defy the conventions of those genres, then what you've got isn't a standard mystery and it isn't a standard romance. Science fiction and fantasy, you can mix with either of those genres, um, but it doesn't have a similar requirement for a particular type of ending. And, and fantasy, actually, I, I mean, I grew up with early fantasy in the 70s, which was sort of more self-contained. But now it's almost a given that it's going to be a series, whether three or six or 73 novels. Now, I can explain where the series thing comes from. Yes, please do. Leaving aside self-published fiction for now, because that's an entirely different can of worms, entirely different type of species, in fact. Um, In traditional publishing, you are not selling your book to the public. What you're selling your book to is your editor, who is actually a workflow manager inside a large corporation, and their job is to feed the pipeline with sausages at the rate of about five or five or ten sausages a month, where each sausage is a book from somebody. Um, and before, and the sausages go through a quality control process called marketing, because what they're controlling for is sell saleability. So you're you're trying to sell your book to an editor. Your editor is trying to sell it to the marketing department. And the absolute easiest pitch for an editor to sell a book to the marketing department is it's just like the last one, only slightly different, or it's a continuation (laughs) of the last one. They know what they're buying then. Yeah. And even I see in Amazon UK, but not so much in Amazon US, so-and-so book, the page turner of the year for fans of, 
And they're putting that into the metadata of the title of the book. And when you look on your Kindle, you see this long thing instead of, you know, the road. It's like for fans of Samuel Beckett and Stephen King, that kind of thing. And I find that almost an invasion of the author's title, given that the author is generally allowed to choose their title these days. Not so much. I've had a few things retitled under me. I got labeled the Singularity Guy early on. Because my right. first SF novel to make a big breakthrough was Singularity Sky. Right. That was not the title I handed in. The title I handed in was Festival of Fools. Unfortunately, uh, Richard Paul Russo had a very well-received novel called Ship of Fools that came out a couple of months before me, before I handed my novel in, you know, after I'd written it. And, you know, push feedback from marketing was we liked the book, but we want a different title. And my editor's special request to me was, Charlie, the singularity is hot right now. I want a title with singularity in it. Do you have a novel in the works with the title Metaverse? No, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) Just to mention a bit of personal experience, I worked in a bookstore in France for about three years. So I saw the tail end of the marketing, the sales reps who come in to sell things and say, it's just like the previous one, but different. Yeah. So that that whole chain from beginning to end, because basically – the publisher has to sell it to the booksellers as well, because booksellers order one or a hundred or a thousand, depending on whether they think they can sell it. There's another even more horrifying constraint that most people don't realize. If you've looked around, you'll see a number of two book trilogies, as in it's the first book of a trilogy, then it's the second book of a trilogy. And where is book three? Tumbleweeds. Yep. It didn't sell well enough for them to want to pay for the third book. Yeah. In general, the sales of a sequel always decline relative to its predecessor. If you have a series whereby book three, it is selling in the same volume as book one, this is actually a winner. The long tail means that it will carry on selling. And when the final book is out, a bunch of readers will go out and buy the entire series because they held off until that point. Um, If you have a series where sales are growing... Um, that's better than a winner. That means you're probably heading in the direction of the bestsellers because you've got long-term exponential growth. Um, I struck lucky twice in my career because the long, because the Merchant Prince's books sold steadily at the same rate. I'm kind of not writing more in that series anymore after book six or book nine because I've somewhat burnt out on it. It was a 20-year project with a million words in it, and I'm middle-aged and I can't hold two projects that big in my head. Meanwhile, The Laundry Universe has one and a half million words in it. Um, I'm currently bogged down in in the mire of writing book 12, and that one for a fair length of time, the sales were actually growing by 10 to 15% from book to book. I think they may be back there again. Unfortunately, it fell victim to the Penguin Random House merger and had to shift publisher, which always sets things back a bit. Ah. You know, I was going to ask you about that. So we interviewed Dan Morin on this podcast a few months ago, and he was explaining that for his world, and he's only on his, what, third or fourth novel, he had so many things to keep track of that he set up a wiki for himself. How do you do it with these long series? You said one is up to number 12 and another one, you know, millions of words. How do you keep track of what's going on? I don't do it very well. In the case of a Merchant Princess series, I destroyed the entire setting at the end of the original book six or end of the third omnibus, then went back and did what was explicitly titled Merchant Princess the Next Generation, set a generation later in another timeline. That got me away from a lot of the complexity. It also allowed me to kill off a huge number of uh, minor characters and sunset a few major ones. So it wasn't a complete clean sheet reboot, but it was a lot of help. 
in the laundry files, um, magic is a branch of applied computer science. Uh, you can summon up Lovecraftian monsters and cast spells via software. A side effect is that um, we're dealing with spice, so a lot of awful lot of stuff is need to know, and a lot more stuff is subject to change. I set Bob, our narrator, up in book two as a horribly unreliable narrator. If Bob says something is true, it's almost certainly wrong. <laughs> um, so you basically hedged against your future forgetting. Oh, you bet. <laughs> um, a classic was the opening of book five, which I pitched at my editor as an alternative to another book I was bogged down in. And I sold it on the basis of a one-sentence pitch over dinner. Um, the pitch is the opening sentence. It helps know Bob is married. His wife is called Mo. Don't be silly, Bob, said Mo. Everybody knows vampires don't exist. Hmm, okay. I think you can tell exactly where that novel is going to go. Yes. Instantly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, unreliable narrators are useful because then you can say, oh, I said so and so, I was wrong. Yeah. I just want to ask a couple questions about influences because I think you won a Locus Award for The Concrete Jungle, which was published in a volume called The Atrocity Archives. And those two titles sound quite Ballardian to me. Is that one of your influences? He is an influence, but it wasn't explicitly on that. The, um, the Atrocity Archives is the first of the Laundry Files books. It started out with a short novel called The Atrocity Archive, singular, uh, which is where we meet Bob, the secret agency known to its inmates as The Laundry and a number of other things, um, which ran in an obscure Scottish SF magazine in free issues in 2002. Then a small publisher, Golden Griffin of Estate, said, well, we'd like to publish it, but it's too short. Can you write something else to go with it? So I wrote The Concrete Jungle as a novella, which I'm trying to remember if it uh, I. Yeah. Narrator, Charlie is looking around the piles of books in his office, which are seem to be from floor to ceiling on either side of him. Yeah, it, I don't think it I, – I can't remember if it won a Locus Award. The thing about The Concrete Jungle is it definitely won a Hugo Award. Okay, my mistake. Because you've which won a number a novel, of Hugos, yeah. Which, yeah, which for a novella published as an extra story at the back of a small press novel was quite startling. Yeah. And that's what actually got the uh, series going. It had been published at that time by a magazine and a small press. And then it got picked up by Ace, which is part of Penguin Random House now. We're going to take a break. Then we're going to come back and talk about how you use Scrivener. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order, in sections as large or small as you like, and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, before we start talking about Scrivener, I just want to briefly touch on your career because you trained as a pharmacist and that doesn't seem like the right path to eventually become a writer. It was a terrible path to become a writer. 
briefly, I was at school in the 1970s to 1980s, um, had to make my decision on what career path to do from O-levels in 1980, uh, which was the year Margaret Thatcher put three million people on the dole in one go. The UK economy shrank 10% that year. Everybody was obsessed with how do you get through university and get a job? The careers advice I got was, no, you can't go to university and do anything that'll help you become a writer. Ho, ho, ho. No, get a real job. And my next best aptitude, according to the careers testers, was to become a pharmacist. Ah, I see. <laughs> Seven years later, I bombed out of it completely. After the second time, the shop I was running was staked out for an armed robbery in one month. <laughs> Luckily, in the meantime, I had discovered the joy of word processors, had been writing at home, began teaching myself to program because what does this gadget do and why doesn't this word processor software have a word count feature? Yeah. Ended up doing night school courses in computer science and then got signed up for a conversion degree in computer science. And when I graduated from that, it was 1991 and there was another recession on and the nearest thing I could get to a job in the industry was writing manuals for graphic supercomputers. Um, Bit of a side turn there. So I ended up iterating through technical author and also uh, software developer during the early days of the dot-com boom before landing a magazine column in the computer press and moving sideways into more and more fiction and less and less freelance journalism. And absolutely no pharmacist. I got out of that. Yeah. yeah, I want nothing to do with that career. I would recommend against it for writers because you have to have a near-perfect memory, obsessive attention to detail, task switch every two or three minutes to, to a new prescription, and absolutely no imagination so you don't lie awake at night worrying about how many people you poisoned. <laughs> have you ever thought of having a character in one of your novels as a pharmacist? They they say, write what you know. Uh, I thought about it, then I drank another beer and forgot about it again. Good idea. Okay, let's talk about Scrivener. How long have you been using Scrivener? I think I began using Scrivener in 2008 on the Mac. It was officially released at that point. I began using it on the Merchant Princess series, which I've talked about earlier, because around book four of the original series, I already had a third of a million words of backstory and a lot of characters. And the characters in question were hopping between parallel universes. And I figured I had three timelines. I needed some way of refactoring all the scene breaks and where the scenes were. And Scrivener looked like a tool that would stop me from sort of drowning in a, a morass of characters in different timelines. And also scrolling back and forth. Yes. I could use the multi-select to edit disjoint scrivenings and see an entire single timeline as a single scroll of text, uh, regardless of where it fell in the uh, with the stuff in between. And um, when I got it all in Scrivener, I realized that, no, I wasn't actually juggling three timelines. I was juggling 17 major characters. Mm -hmm. So my mission for the next two and a half books was to kill off as many as possible. <laughs> I achieved this at the end of book six, uh, the end of the third omnibus, with a medium-sized nuclear war. I mean, George R.R. R. Martin just has a red wedding and has everybody stab themselves. But I found send the U.S. Strategic Air Command in to drop hydrogen bombs <laughs> in a parallel universe is even more efficient. And so how do you use Scribner? Do you use it for all your novels now? Uh, yes, with caveats. I am 100% traditionally published, which means I have to deal with big publisher workflow. I'm published currently by Tor and by Orbit. And they all assume everybody uses Microsoft Word and Adobe Acrobat, because why wouldn't they make that assumption? Um, 
what it is is it's the lowest common denominator for expecting people to handle electronic documents um so the copy editors can check use track changes to do copy edits on a manuscript the typesetters then important turn the copy edited manuscript into an adobe indesign dtp file send off a pdf author can then check the pdf and send it back and then they turn it into both pdf for the printing presses and an epub file which is also an adobe format for the ebooks yeah and this is what most writers find if they do have to work with word documents i just wrote an article on the scrivener blog i'll link in the show notes about importing and exporting word documents but when you do have to deal with track changes that's where you've just got to put up with word for a while isn't it yeah a 120,000 word novel for me usually ends up as about uh, 70 to 80 scrivenings in 10 chapters. Then I hit publish and it turns into one flat word document. Mm. It goes for editing. And what comes back to me is a flat word document with maybe 5,000 total changes in it to check and two or 300 comments. And I don't even dare try and do that in LibreOffice or a non-Microsoft yeah. word processor because yeah. I've got about two weeks to check it. And if there's any subtle bugs there, um, I've just damaged the uh, production time. Yeah. How do you organize your novels in the binder in Scrivener? You were mentioning earlier that you were dealing with different timelines. Do you use a lot of folders and a lot of files? Do you mark the folders and files according to character, timeline, whatever? I actually use it pretty crudely. Um, as I said, Scrivener version one actually did 95% of what I wanted Scrivener to do. Um, I don't use the binder in any kind of sophisticated way. I don't have different uh, views views of it. I just use a straightforward novel format with um, one folder per chapter, sometimes sections with chapters within them, and then one scrivening per scene as a rule. Right. Do you use the research folder at all? Uh, yeah, I kind of... I dump a ton of uh, various stuff I found on the web into the research folder and then merrily ignore it. <laughs> because it's there. I absolutely have to reread it. Yeah. But um, it is not my primary organization. It's just useful to have. Yeah. I've talked to people who use the research folder extensively, and particularly for nonfiction. But it's true that in fiction, unless you're referring to a particular uh, historical event or location or whatever, you may have a lot less research unless you want to make your own research file to remind you of all the things that you've forgotten about your previous novels. Yeah, I'm pretty old school. I've been using word word processors since about 1985. And given the speed of a modern computer with an SSD in it, and the fact that I'm working with fairly simple text files... My main organizational thing is regular expression search. Um, when Scrivener 3 got pull compatible regular expressions, I was in heaven because that is, I've been, I spent years programming in pull. I'm intimately familiar with how to write regex and how to search for stuff. For people who don't understand that, I'll put a link in the show notes explaining what regular expressions are. It's a computer geeky thing. It's actually very powerful when you're searching for things. You know, one thing I like about science fiction is that writers can often sort of refer indirectly to other writers. And I noticed that um, the first sentence of your novel, The Family Trade, is the sky was the color of a dead laptop display, silver gray and full of rain, which science fiction readers will know, comes from William Gibson. What what are your influences in science fiction? Well, in the 1980s, when I was a spotty teenager, I was far too heavily influenced by cyberpunk, probably to my detriment. 
Um, that's not a bad thing to admit at this point, uh, but it's like um, confessing to an adolescent liking for a particular pop group who might be a bit embarrassing these days. You become more sophisticated and move on with age. I try not to be too heavily influenced by any one writer. Um, but back when I was young, I sort of voraciously drained of a local library and then the local secondhand bookstore of everything science fiction that they had. Back and back before the 1980s, you could pretty much stay current and read everything that was published in the UK. Um, there, these days, it's drinking from a fire hose. There's no way to be current on genre stuff. But it means if you if somebody is teaching an academic course on the history of science fiction, then I basically got a, I, com, mostly complete coverage of what was out there before 1970 to 75-ish. Um, at too young an age to make sense of some of it, but at least it sort of stuck around in my head, so I'm familiar with it. Since then, it's be, I've been a lot more selective. I've also been trying to read outside the genre as much as possible because um, if you're unfamiliar with what other genres are working in, how do you know you're not reinventing the wheel? Yeah, and looking at the world today, science fiction is part of our everyday world. So many things that we thought were science fiction have come true in recent years. Yeah, you cannot... Okay, I'm not taking a cheap pot shot at the mainstream literary fiction novel of realistic people in realistic everyday life. But if you try and write a litfic novel that doesn't include smartphones and semi-invisible killer robots cruising the skies over Afghanistan... Um, and a global pandemic, just to mention, you know... I'm trying to think... I was about to give an example here. Yeah, Dead Air by Ian Banks... Came, it came out in, I think, 2002 or 2003. It's one of his mainstream novels rather than his science fiction. But it is a novel with a plot that does not work unless everybody in it has a cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, and that is an example of what I mean by a viable mainstream novel. It relies on an unexceptional fact of modern life that is missing from most yeah, it's true. And one of the things is that even you'll either get a novel where it's obsessively people texting each other and Instagramming, or you'll get something where it's pretty much ignored. It, it's kind of hard to get that middle ground, I think. Or you can write historical. Yes, which historical means pre-2007 when the iPhone came yeah. out. And once you're before that, very few people had smartphones or phones at all. Go back to pre-2000 and you can do what you want. You've had a career now that's gone through more than two dozen novels and from a pharmacist to a science fiction author. What would you recommend for people starting out writing science fiction? It's very, very dangerous for somebody like me, 57 and 20 plus years in, in this career, to give useful advice because everything is changing really fast. About every generation, publishing undergoes a sea change when some kind of distribution channel collapses and another one emerges to take its place. For example, right now we're seeing a lot of people talking about the Foundation series by Asimov, which is screening on Apple TV. He wrote it as a series of novellas in the old pulp magazines, which imploded at the end of the 1940s. These were printed on cheap wood pulp and distributed like newspapers throughout the United States. And when they collapsed, this left a vacuum, which was filled fairly rapidly by pulp paperbacks, which were also distributed like newspapers and magazines. Um, it's where the convention in America of, of 
tearing the cover off a book that's unsold and returning it for credit comes from. They were sold like newspapers. Now, that built up, but was gradually supplanted in the 1990s by the chain bookstores, Barnes & Noble and Borders. Then Borders collapsed, Barnes & Noble ran into trouble, and e-books began to emerge. A problem with mass market paperbacks is about 60% of them end up in the dumpster. It's not very profitable. E-books, they're sort of the ideal print on demand. There are no unsold copies. There are no remainders. And they're effectively sold as the new disposable literature. So it shouldn't be a surprise that I've completely fallen out of mass market paperback because my sales in mass market dwindled by 80% over the decade from 2003. Meanwhile, my sales in e-book rose to fill up. You know, I'm not I'm not bankrupt or anything. I'm actually selling as many books as before. But what we've seen is one sales channel replaces another. And anyone starting out now is starting out in an entirely different market environment from where I started out. The big distinction that e-books have made isn't that they're more efficient or more profitable as books from big publishers, is that they're more accessible for self-publishers. Self-publishing simply was not an option when I started out. And I am not sure how to speak to somebody who's in an environment where they've got to choose between trad publishing or self-publishing or some hybrid mode. Because in self-publishing, you have to do everything yourself. You've got to do your marketing. You've got to do your, well, you'll hire someone maybe as an editor and hire an illustrator, but you've got to do everything yourself without the support of that traditional publisher who is hoping that they can sell the book that's just a little bit different from the last one. Exactly. It is... um, I'm not sure that my, my experience is transferable in any way to a modern writer, I'm afraid. I would like to help. But the only advice I can think of that is generally applicable is Robert Heinlein's advice from the 1930s, um, way before the pulps disappeared or the mass market paperbacks emerged, which is um, keep writing, finish what you start, send it out on submission. If it fails to sell, send it out again. Don't rewrite it until somebody asks for a rewrite. Now, some of this advice is a bit dated. It doesn't apply to self-publishing. It applies to people trying to look for a publisher or a magazine outlet. But the key advice, keep writing, finish what you start, is an eternal truth. Okay, Charlie Strauss, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.